are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. We bow to Romans chapter 8. I'll share with you a verse and a sermon you're going to need sometime if you don't need it now. Everybody in this room is either having trouble or you just got out of trouble, or you're about to get into trouble, or you know somebody else who's having trouble. Job said, man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. And you can finish this one for me. He that's born to woman is few days and full of trouble. Jesus says, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Seems like this year has been the trouble year for me. My older brother died the first of this year. I had his funeral. A month later, my father passed away with the prostate cancer that had gone to his bones, and I had his funeral. And about two weeks after that at home, sitting there with my wife, feeling fine, hadn't been sick. I don't have a doctor as such because I've never needed a doctor. And my wife began to urge me to go in for a physical examination. I said, nothing wrong with me, baby. I said, I... I feel good. She said, you ought to go in anyway, just for a physical. She kept urging, kept urging. And you know how women are. Sometimes they won't quit. I said, I don't have a doctor. She said, uh, if you'll go to my doctor. Now, she has, she has 25 or 30 doctors, like most women. <laughs> she said, if you'll go to my doctor, I'll make an appointment for you. I said, all right, you make the appointment, I'll go. So she made the appointment. I went for a physical. Doctor just bragging on how good a shape I was in and on and on and on. He did the uh, examination for my prostate gland, and then he cringed and said, I don't like what I feel. And said to me, I want you to see a urologist now, knowing that my father just passed away a few weeks earlier with a prostate cancer that had gone to his bones. I went to see the urologist the very next day. Didn't know him because I didn't have a doctor, you see. So I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And just matter of factly, walking around, looking out the floor to examine, he said, well, I'm going out of town for a week. And he said, but while I'm gone, you go get a bone scan. I think to myself, a bone scan? I feel like somebody ran on me with a truck. You don't get a bone scan before you get a blood test. They have a test now called a PSA test of the man's blood. They can tell whether or not you got prostate cancer, at least can almost tell. It's called the gold standard in, in testing for prostate cancer. He hadn't got my blood work back. Uh, then you do an ultrasound, and then if it looks suspicious, you do a biopsy. And then if you find out you do have cancer through the biopsy, which is a sure way to find out, then you go ahead and get a bone scan to see if it's gone outside the prostate gland or other places in the body. And he said to me, you know how this cancer loves bones? And I'm thinking, man, you know I just buried my father with bone cancer. Went from the prostate uh, gland to his bones. You're trying to kill him in your office with shock. I didn't say that to him, but I was thinking, boy, what good bedside manners you have. Uh, you didn't see anything from me except my waist down. That's all you saw. You didn't think I had a heart or a head on me at all. I left his office, and I was uh, disturbed, to say the least. Not, not, not disturbed like maybe you'd think, but I was very concerned. I thought I may die. When I found out about my father's cancer, he had died within a year after that. I said, maybe I have a year to live, maybe two years. Who knows what I have left? And I did something I've never had to do in my life. I began to ask such questions as, what do I do now? I've never been sick. So I really wanted to take the scriptural steps and what the fellow ought to do whenever he gets sick. And I thought to myself, what shall I do? And I thought of James chapter 5, verse 13, verse 16, where it says, Is any among you sick or afflicted? Let him pray. The word suffering. 
Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And if he's committed any sins, they shall be forgiven him. So I call the members of my little church for my son pastors, and they've joined at my house in prayer and prayed for me as the Bible commanded. I'd ask the doctor, should I tell anybody about this? Oh, no, he said, don't tell anybody. I said, well, I want some folks to pray for me. Well, he said, I wouldn't tell anybody. I said, Doc, he was a Christian, Dr. Hackman, the first guy examined for the physical. I said, Doctor, if I don't pray about it, I don't give God a chance. If I pray and God doesn't do anything, at least he can't say to me, you didn't ask me. Because James 4.2 says, you have not because you ask not. I said, I don't want God putting that on me. He laughed, said, in that case, call people and tell them to pray for you then. So I called a few friends and we prayed. And uh, then I called a friend of mine in Florida, who's a member of my son-in-law's church, and he's a... Uh, has several clinics there and on the board of five different hospitals, and I called him because I felt close to him. He was a friend. I knew him, and I talked to him and told him my situation. He said, well, he said, you don't need to wait a week for your doctor to come back. He said, you come down here. We'll run all the tests on you, and by Friday night, I'll know whether or not you have prostate cancer, and I'll tell you, and we'll, we'll, we'll have some kind of a treatment prescribed for you by Friday night. So I went to Florida. My whole family went. All my members from my family came, my sons. And my daughters, my daughter-in-law and my sons-in-laws, they all came. And I went through a series of tests. And to make the long story short, on Friday, I went into his office and he, he told me what I didn't want to hear. He said, you do have prostate cancer. And that was shock enough. And then he said to me, and uh, I know you don't want to hear this, but he said, there's a trace of it in your bones. I said, how long have I got to live, Doc? But he said, nobody really knows that. He said, only God knows that. You're a preacher. You know that better than anybody else. He said, you may live many years. I said, How, what is many? He said, three, five, ten. It didn't sound like many years to me, fifteen. And so I, I had to preach to myself, and I thought of Romans 8, 28. I'd never preached a sermon from it. I'd shared it with friends when trouble came in their lives. I'd quoted, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are called according to his purpose. I'd quoted that time and time again. But I'd never really applied it to my own life. I never had a need to. I'd never known much trouble. God had been good to me. But I thought, is that verse true? And I said, yes, it is true. The Holy Bible must have been inspired of God and not of men. I would not, if I could, believe that good men wrote it to deceive. And bad men would not, if they could, proceed to write a book so good. And no crazy man could e'er conceive its wondrous plan. So pray what other kind of men then do these three groups comprehend. So it must be that God inspired the words that souls of prophets fired. Enough logic in that point to make anybody believe that the Bible is the word of God from beginning to end. And you can trust everything in this book. Several things I want to give you in this verse. I outlined this sermon preaching it to myself on my back porch. Number one is the certainty of the promise. Jot it down. Well, watch the language in the text. It doesn't say that most people believe that all things work together for good. It doesn't say that all Baptists agree that all things work together for good. It doesn't say we have done a poll and 95% of all the people in America believe that all things work together for good. No, the language is certainty. It says we know that all things work together for good. Now watch this. Don't miss this. Faith is not certainty. Knowledge is certainty. When it becomes certainty, it is no longer faith. It ceases to be faith and becomes knowledge. When they prayed for me in my living room, 
John Reynolds looked at me and said, well, Doc, how do you feel? What do you think? He wanted me to say, well, John, whoo, glory to God, I know I'm healed. I know God's touched my body and I've been healed. He wanted me to say that, but I couldn't say that. I wanted to say that. I don't cry much, but I cried. And I said, John, I must tell you the truth. I hope I'm healed. I believe God can heal me. But to tell you I believe God has healed me, I'd be telling a lie, and God knows I would. I said, all I can say, John, is like the man in the Bible said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I read a book by Dr. Rice a day or two later, his book on prayer. And under the chapter, The Prayer of Faith, Dr. Rice says there's a certain amount of unbelief mixed with all faith. Now hear this. Dr. Rice says you can write on one side of the page total unbelief. And right on the other side of the page, absolute certainty, and draw a line from one to the other, and faith is anywhere on that line. It may be that close to total unbelief. Or it may be in the middle of the line, as far from absolute certainty as it is from unbelief, but it's still faith. And hold on a moment. It is not the degree of faith that gets the job done. It's the object of faith that gets the job done. Remember that story in the Old Testament when they were told to look on the brazen serpent? If you look, Moses said, you shall live. And they raised a brazen serpent. Now hold it. It didn't say if you have 20-20 vision and look and can see it real good, you'll live. It just said look and live. A man could have been blind in one eye and nearly blind in the other eye and had to be pointed toward the direction where the serpent was. But if he took what little eyesight he had and looked at that serpent, he would have lived just as surely as a man that had 20-20 vision. I think we Christians sometimes get the impression that it's the degree of faith that gets the job done. Oh, no, it is not faith that makes faith important. It's the object of faith that makes faith important. Don't you see that? When I trusted Christ as my Savior, I did not have the faith then that I have now, but I was just as saved then as I am now. Don't you see that? Hold on a minute. What is that verse that says, if you have the faith of a grain of a... Say it out loud. What is it? Mustard seed, you know, that's very small seed. He said, you could say to yonder mountain, be plucked up and cast in the midst of the sea, and it would be done. The faith of a grain of mustard seed, hold on a moment. If you have a wagon load of unbelief, a wagon load of unbelief, and down in the wagon load of unbelief is a little tiny grain of faith the size of a mustard seed, God will sift through all that unbelief and honor that mustard seed faith. Don't you see that? Now hold it. Romans 8, 28 is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of knowledge. When it becomes knowledge, it ceases to be faith because knowledge is not certainty. Faith, excuse me, faith is not certainty. Knowledge is certainty. And the book says we what? We know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. What a verse. Enough to make a Presbyterian shout. If I wasn't so dignified and you weren't taping this message for television, I might have an old-fashioned Nazarene Pentecostal Baptist robbing, running fit myself. Good mind too anyway and say, whoopee, at least. <laughs> Certainty. Now you can take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. This verse is true whether you believe it or not, whether anybody accepts it or not. This is an absolute fact. This is a certainty. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are called according to his purpose. What a verse. Second thing we see about the verse or the promise is this, the, the circumference of the promise. Now I use the word circumference because of a little word I found in the Bible several years ago that I misunderstood. It was a little word peculiar. 
It's found at least twice. It may be found more than that to describe Christians. Peter says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. And Titus says that he has redeemed us from all iniquity, that he might purify unto himself a people, zealous, peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, the word peculiar doesn't mean odd and strange and, and give us an excuse to act like crazy people. That's not what it means. Kenneth Weiss, a Greek professor at Wheaton Bible College many years ago, said the word peculiar can be charted by putting a dot on the chart, chart, uh, chalkboard and circling the dot with a circle. And the dot is peculiar to the circle. Now, hold on a moment. And Dr. Wee says, anything that gets to the, cir- the dot has to come through the circle. Nothing ever gets inside that circle without God allowing it. Isn't that amazing? You know, when we get sick or something happens, we tend to want to say, Lord, let me tell you about something. You don't need to tell him about anything. He knows about it. Listen to this. You know, nothing comes in your life. Nothing. Nothing comes in your life. I don't care how bad it is or how bad you think it is. Nothing comes into your life that God did not know about first and allowed it to come. It had to come across his desk. Let me give you a verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen to this now. Watch it very closely. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able, but will also with the temptation make a way for your escape. Did you get that verse? God says, there hath no temptation taken you, nor me, nor anybody else, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted or tested above that you're able. That means if God sends a trial into this pastor's life, God knows that this pastor can bear that trial. That means if God sends a trial or trouble into this singer's life, God knows ahead of time that he can bear that trial because God promised he'll not suffer us to be tempted above that we're able to bear. Isn't that a wonderful promise? How many of you have ever said, if one more thing happens to me, I'll pull my hair out? You ever said that? You can tell I said it and one more thing happened, you know. But the truth of mine is you still have your hair so that one more thing never did happen. And you said, I've had about all I can. One more thing happens, I'm going crazy. You didn't go crazy. So that one more thing never did happen. God never overloads us. You can think of the worst tragedy in your life. And think about it right now. Think of the worst news you ever received. Think of the saddest moment in your life. Think of the worst phone call you ever received, the one you thought you could not, the one that crushed you down to the earth, and you said, I just can't take it. It's awful. Think of the worst news you ever got. And you can put that inside that circle. That's part of the all things that work together the good to them that love the Lord. God knew I had cancer. It didn't shock God before I ever had cancer. It came across God's desk, and God said, oh, let me see. Now, Curtis won't like this. And he'll be calling me up about this. And he'll be ringing my doorbell, and he'll think this is terrible that this happened to him, and he won't understand this, but I know that he can bear this. I'm letting this go into his life because he will not suffer me to be tested or tempted or tried above that that I'm able. What a promise. What a promise. We shouldn't get down in the mouth and sad and depressed when things come into our life. We should believe the Bible that all things do work together for good to them that love the Lord. Mrs. Hoffman said to me one time, not at this occasion, but another occasion, something had happened. We didn't like it, the sword. And she said, well, doctor, listen, I guess we'll just have to accept it. 
The Bible says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. I said, you don't believe that verse, Miss Hoffman. Oh, she was shocked. Well, certainly I believe that. I believe the Bible. You know I believe the Bible. I said, no, you don't believe that. Why did you say that, she asked. I said, if you believe that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, including that fly that's bothering me. I said, if you believe that, you wouldn't say, well, just have to accept it. You get excited about it. If everything works for your good, well, it works for good. I guess I just have to take it. It works for my good. What an attitude. You, you don't act like it's working for your good. Hang on. By the way, don't make me do this in vain. When I bend my ear, that means say amen. This is not a nervous habit I have up here. My ears will look like mud flaps on tractor trailer trucks by Tuesday night if you don't help me. Now, come on. At least some of you, a few of you. The certainty of the promise, the circumference of the promise, all things. Number three, the culmination, or the, let's say the cooperation of the promise. All things work together for good. Now watch it. It doesn't say all things are good because they're not. It wasn't good. When I went to the doctor's office, he said to me, well, you ought to get a bone scan. You know how this loves the bones. And walked off and left me for a week. That wasn't good. It wasn't good after I prayed I wouldn't have it to find out in far I did have it. That wasn't good. It's not good now to be in the shape that I'm in, not knowing and wondering what's going on in my body. That's not good. A lot of things came in my life that was not good. It wasn't good when my mother and father divorced. And my mother moved to Norman, Oklahoma and took with her my two baby sisters and my baby brother. That wasn't good. My daddy moved to Charleston, South Carolina. My older brother moved to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And I was in Atlanta on my own as a 16-year-old boy. That wasn't good. It doesn't say all things are good, but it says all things work together for good. Don't misunderstand that to them that love the Lord. Even the bad things in your life. It's an old illustration, but I'll use it. You probably heard it a thousand times, but I'll use it anyway. Bacon powder is not good by itself. And just flour is not good by itself. Out of a barrel of flour. And lard, out of a lard bucket, is not good by itself. You're a gag eating that. And buttermilk's not good. It is good to me, but a lot of folks it's not good. But clabbered buttermilk's not good by itself. And salt. But you put it all in a bread tray and begin to work it together. And you work it together, but it becomes dough. And you roll it out in little bitty patties and put it on a little tray and put it in the oven and leave it in there for a long time. As long as you need to, it gets brown on the top and bottom. And it's hot biscuits. And you put a little butter on it. Put some homemade blackberry jam on it. Ooh you get some of that on your forehead, your tongue will slap your brains out trying to get to it. It's so good. None of that's good by itself, but it all works together for our good. For our good. No matter how bad it is, it works for our good. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache, but in my soul, I'm glad I know. He maketh no mistake. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. The dark threads are as needful in the master's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. So I go on not knowing. I would not if I might. I'd rather walk with Christ in the dark than to walk alone in the light. Age 8 Christian of yesteryear, when going through trouble, prayed, be thorough with me, Jesus. Be thorough with me. Yeah, the cooperation of the promise. All things work together. 
And then the culmination of the promise, all things work together for good. Isn't that amazing? Everything in your life is working for you and cooperating together and working together for your good according to this promise. It's the truth for your good. We don't see the good now, but it's good. The farmer piled up the brushes. He'd been trimming some trees. He had planned to burn the brush pile later that year. Time went by and never set fire to it. A little bird came in the early spring, began to build a nest in the brush pile, and the farmer walked by and saw it. The little bird had worked so hard, carrying one little twig at a time all day long, maybe a hundred or so twigs, got the nest started. The farmer came by and just brushed the nest away. If the little bird could have talked, it may have said, what a mean farmer. How cruel. I labored all day long, and one sweep of the hand, he tore my nest up. So the bird started over, not to be defeated, he started over. And again, brought the little twigs in, got the nest started. The next morning, the farmer came by, and again, he swept the nest away. The bird must have thought, what has he got against me? Why does he hate me? So the bird started again the third time, built the little nest. And this day, two days went by, and the nest nearly, nearly completed. And the farmer came by and saw it and swept it away again, not a stick left. The bird saw his building in vain at that spot, so he moved to a little tree next to the back porch and built a nest, laid the eggs, and little birds were hatched. And when the little birds were still in the nest, the farmer walked down by the walkway. He never bothered the nest, by the way, let the bird go ahead. While the little birds were still in the nest, the farmer set fire to the brush pile, and it went up in smoke. The little bird must have wiped his little brow and said, what a good farmer. Man, what a great farmer. Boy, how he loves me. You know something? We in the future are going to look back on life and say, God knew what he was doing. And when you get in heaven and look back, you won't change one thing that God did in your life because you'll see that every single thing in your life was like a fine cut stone placed in a building and God was making you into what he wanted you to be. Does this name ring a bell? J. Vernon McGee. Anybody know that name? Raise your hand. Oh. Through the Bible? Is that right? You've heard, who's heard J. Vernon McGee preach on the radio through the Bible? Raise your hand. You, I've heard him so many times driving along. They said, J. Vernon McGee, we're going on the Bible bus. We're in the book of Isaiah. Open your Bible to Isaiah 53, has 12 verses and 12 mentions of the substitutionary death of Jesus in the verse. Martin Luther said this, this chapter so precious should have been written on a parchment of gold and lettered with diamonds. Isaiah, I've heard him so many times. When he was in his late 50s, I was 58 two years ago, two years ago, <laughs> excuse me, two days ago, Father, forgive me, I don't know what I'm saying. Two days ago, July 10th, 58 years old. J. Vernon McGee was in his late 50s. He was pastor of the Open Door Church in Los Angeles, California, R.A. Torrey's old church. He got to feeling weak and bad. He went to the doctor. He was diagnosed with lung cancer and given a year to live. Doctor, you have a year to live. I didn't hear J. Vernon McGee tell this, but a close friend of his drove all the way to Murphy to tell me this story on my back porch. And he cried as he told me this story. He said, Dr. McGee said... That old church was as dead as a doornail. He said, I hadn't had revival since Tory left there years ago. And he said, if I've only got a year to live, I'm not going to spend this old dead church. He said, I'm resigning the church. And he left the church. 
He said, what will I do with my life? This year that I have left, he said, I can do a little radio broadcast. I'll make the tapes in my home. I can do my research and study in my home. He started a little radio broadcast called Through the Bible. And he taught it for a year and didn't die. So he taught it another year and didn't die. And the third year, he went through the Bible. He started back through the Bible again. Fourth year. Fifth year and the sixth year, and he didn't die. And he was through the Bible again. And the seventh year and the eighth year and ninth year, he was through the Bible again. And the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth year, he was through the Bible again. And the fourteenth and fifteenth and sixteenth year, he was through the Bible again. And seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, he was through the Bible again. And twenty and twenty-one, twenty-two and twenty-three, he was through the Bible again. And twenty-four and twenty-five and twenty-six and twenty-seven, he was through the Bible again. And thirty years, nearly thirty years, he went through the Bible. He's eighty-something years old. Before he died, he said, the best thing that ever happened to me was cancer. Did you know they took those tapes from radio, put them in manuscript form. Now there's a commentary all the way through the Bible. J. Vernon McGee, big books, about four volumes when I got the set, two volumes on the Old Testament, two volumes on the New Testament. One of the best set of commentaries you ever get your hands on, I gave those commentaries to all my sons-in-laws and to my sons who are all, and my son who's all preachers. Cancer. He may have stayed out there at that little old church in dead church in Los Angeles. How many does anybody have Dr. Lee Robinson's signature in your Bible? Anybody have Dr. Lee Robinson's signature in your Bible? You do? If you look next to his signature, you'll see the little verse, Romans eight twenty eight. See if it's in there. Did you know Romans eight twenty eight has not always been his favorite verse? His life verse for a long time was first Peter two twenty one. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. You know how 828 Romans became his favorite verse? It was 1946. He had a little daughter born named Joy. She was nine months old. He was in a revival meeting in Russellville, Alabama. He got a call. You needed a home immediately. Your little daughter, Joy, just passed away. Unexplained, nine months old. He couldn't wait to get home. Coming down old 41 Highway toward Chattanooga, Tennessee, he ran into a place where the road was blocked and they had to take a detour around a little bitty street. He wanted to get home so bad and yet he got to take his little side road now. And Dr. Robinson said, when I turned off that main highway on that little side road, God seemed to say to me, Romans 8, 28 will be your verse from now on. And now he signs everybody's Bible with Romans 8, 28 next to it. Joy died. He had a funeral. But he started a camp called Camp Joy. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have gone through that camp. Hundreds of thousands of them. You know something? Not a one of them ever paid a dime to go to that camp. Hundreds of thousands of folks have been saved in that camp, and hundreds of thousands of young men have given their life to full-time Christian service. Now missionaries, now preachers around the world. Why? Because of the tragedy that came in Dr. Lee Robinson's life. He named it Camp Joy. He also started Tennessee Temple University after that. And the story goes on and on and on. All things do work together for good to them that love the Lord. Mike and Stephanie Johns, who worked for me, visit my home the day he was about to leave to go to Florida. I just decided to go as soon as the doctor told me to come down there. I said to Jerry, let's get ready and go. Mike and Stephanie came out. And Mike was sort of sad. And I walked out of the car with him. Stood there next to the car. And uh, he started getting in the car and, and leave. And he said, well, Doc, when will we see you again? And I said, Mike, it depends on whether or not the news is good or bad. 
And I turned and walked back toward the house, and he backed out the drive and started down the drive around the fence. And I thought, I said the wrong thing to Mike. I said, it depends on whether or not the news is good or bad. I said, wait a minute, Mike, wait a minute, wait, wait, stop the car, Mike, wait. He stopped. I ran to the car. He rolled the window down. I said, I said something wrong, Mike. I said, I said, it depends on whether or not the news is good or bad. Mike, there won't be any bad news. No matter what the news is, it's good news because all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are called according to his purpose. A Christian can't get bad news. You know, only get good news. No matter how bad it is, it's good. That's one of the paradoxes of Christianity. What a God. If I wasn't so dignified, I would have a spell. What a God. The certainty of the promise. The circumference of the promise. The cooperation of the promise. The conclusion of the promise. I'll give you two more. The condition for the promise. Now watch what the promise says. It doesn't say all things work together for good of those that are saved. This is one of those conditional promises. In fact, it has two conditions. All things work together for good to them that love God. Hold it a minute. Does every Christian love God? Well, maybe not like they should. Charles Spurgeon said, I want to love Jesus so much. I want to look up to heaven and say, dear Jesus, I love you. He'll look down and say, yes, Charles, I know it. You know what the greatest commandment in the Bible is? The lawyer asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? He thought he'd hang him up and get him tripped up on that question. The Lord didn't hesitate. He knew what it was. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And the second one's back into it. To love your neighbors yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Do you know the greatest sin a man can commit is not adultery or murder or stealing? The greatest sin would be to break the greatest commandment and not love God like you ought to love him. Did you know what good would be if my wife served me all the time, cooked the meals, brought what I needed to eat and drink, and fixed the house and cleaned the house, and she didn't love me? I'd rather not keep the house quite as good and love me than to keep the house good and not love me. Well, she says, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you. Yeah, but I want you to love me. What I want you to do for me. And I think God wants us to love him more than he does us to do for him. We express our love by doing. I'm not suggesting you be lazy. But if we're just going to do, 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 do all the time for God, be so busy, we never have time for God, and never say, God, I love you, I think he must be sort of sad about that. John chapter 21. The Lord appeared on the seashore, and he called Peter. He asked the question, Simon, do you love me? Peter wouldn't say, I love you. You know what he said? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Now, he didn't ask Peter, Lord. He didn't say, Peter, how much do I know? That's what Peter answered. He said, you know everything. Don't you know God knew that he knew everything? If he knows everything, he knows he knows everything. Don't you know that? Don't you know that nothing ever occurred to God? He knows the end from the beginning. You never shock God. You never surprise God. So Jesus asked the second time, Simon, do you love me? Well, he said, Lord, you know I love you. You know everything. Now, he didn't ask that. So the Lord asked the third time, Simon, do you love me? He never would say, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, you know everything. You know what God was trying to do? You know what Christ was trying to do? He was just simply trying to get Peter to say, I love you. He wanted to hear him say, I love you. It would be like my wife coming and say, Curtis, do you love me? 
I said, are you crazy? Have you slept too long on one side and your brain rolled out your ear? I've been living with you 40 years. You asked, do I love you? If I didn't love you, I wouldn't live with you 40 years. I didn't answer her question. So she tried to encourage Curtis, do you love me? Are you crazy, woman? We got four kids and nine grandkids. I wouldn't put up with you 40 years if I didn't love you. She didn't ask that. I say, Jerry, do you love me? That's a dumb question. That's not the answer. But you know, sometimes when a husband says to the wife, do you love me? She goes, what, what, what a dumb question. Or the, or the husband asks, the, or the wife asks, do you love me? And he comes back and says, well, I work 40 hours a week, and then some give him a whole paycheck, and you don't give me any money back, and I have to borrow money to eat lunch every day, and yank, 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 yank. Well, you care on you to make coffee nervous. You'd give an aspirin a headache the way you do. No, she wants to hear him say, I love you. If your husband says to you, do you love me, say, yes, I love you. Don't beat the devil around the stump. Did you know the Lord can never get Peter to say, I love you? Ask him three times. My heart hurts when I think about that. He asked him three times. But when's the last time you said to God, I love you? I love you. I don't care what comes into my life. I love you anyway. And I know you, you have the best, my best interest in mind. I'm not questioning what you're doing. The condition for the promise. We've got to love God. And number two, we've got to be called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for every life. And your life must be surrendered to God's purpose for your life. Your purpose is singing and doing what you're doing. Your purpose is to be pastor of this church. My purpose is to be the head of the soul of the Lord. If you're yielded to God's will or purpose for your life and you love him, you can claim this promise. Did you know I'd want those two bases covered just so I could hang on to this promise? I need this promise every once in a while. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. To them that are called according to his purpose. Hold it, hold it. I can't stop yet. You've got to go to verse 29 to see the cause for the promise. Why do all things work together for good to them that love the Lord? What's the cause of it? Verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestine to be conformed into the image of his Son. Oh, I see. I see. Oh, God's letting things happen to me in my life to work out for my good because he has predetermined that I'll be exactly like Jesus Christ. You know, someday all of us are going to be like Christ. It didn't exactly. I mean, we'll look like him, but we'll be like him. Because 1 John 3, 2 says, Now we are the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So God is letting things happen in my life to make me more and more and more like Christ. We're growing into Christ-likeness. That's what spiritual growth is. It is growing into Christ-likeness. And so God lets things come into our life to make us more like him. Came back from Florida. I had to find a urologist in Nashville. I can't go to Florida all the time. So I went to Nashville to a friend that had come to hear me preach a couple of times. And uh, a doctor there. And went to his office. He wanted to talk. Strange. He wanted to talk about everything except my condition. What do you do? What did you do before you came to Murfreesboro? He knew I edited the paper. He heard me preach there. I told him about the church in Atlanta. We talked an hour. He'd go see somebody in one of those little waiting rooms, patient rooms. He'd say, don't leave. I want to talk to you some more. He'd come back again. He'd say, if you don't mind, would you stay a little longer? I want to talk some more. We'd talk for an hour or two. 
between visits with patients, he'd come back to his office and would talk. Then he said to me, what do you think about your condition? What do you think? I said, well, of course I want to get well. I said, but I don't want to get my priorities wrong. I said, first, I'm trying to see what God's trying to do in my life. More so than getting well, I'm trying to say, Lord, what is it you're trying to teach me? If you're trying to teach me something, I said, Lord, I'm a fast learner. I can learn in a few minutes. We don't need to drag this thing out for months. I'm learning fast. In fact, I'll drop everything, go to school day and night till I learn what you're trying to teach me. He laughed. I said, I'm trying to see what God's trying to do in my life. I think sometimes we get so selfish, we look at our condition, and we think about ourselves so much, we're not looking at what God's trying to do in our life. And maybe God's trying to do something. I know one thing, I've learned a lot of lessons. I've gone through the Bible trying to find out why people get sick. I found five, only five reasons people get sick. Can't preach me tonight. Only five reasons in the Bible people get sick. I'm writing a book on the subject. And what to do about it. And so on, you can do something about it. I'm learning a lot. Well, God's making us more and more like Christ. Judson, the missionary, landed. And the reporters met him at the dock and said, Judson, they're writing you up as another apostle Paul. How does it make you feel? And Judson cried and said, I didn't want to be like Paul. I wanted to be like Jesus. You know, I wish I had written that song, Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thy art. Come in thy fullness, come in thy sweetness, and stamp thine own image deep on my heart. To be like Christ. That's God's goal for all of us. We are predestined not to be saved or lost, but to be conformed to the image of his Son. I left my doctor in, in Nashville. He said, well, I want you to come back in a month for a blood test. We'll check your PSA count. The PSA stands for sp prostate-specific antigen. It measures the uh, protein in your blood. The normal count in a man is from zero to four. If your PSA counts 11, you probably have a serious infection and need some antibiotics. If it's as high as 13, you could have cancer. I have a friend whose PSA count is 13. He has cancer being treated with radiation. The higher the number, the greater the volume of cancer. My PSA count was 270. And I won't tell you any more about it than that. They grade cancer. They gave me the grade of my cancer. I won't tell you that. But 270, the devil said to me, you're a goner. I said, you're a liar too. It's not the first lie you ever told. You're a goner. Did I have great, could I say, I'm healed, I know I'm healed. No, I could say, I believe, help my unbelief. It wasn't total unbelief, so it was faith. So in the sword of the Lord, rumors got out about me in Atlanta that I died and was buried. Others got out that I'd resigned the sword of the Lord, had a few weeks to live. All kind of rumors got out, so I had to write something in the sword about it because it you know, I, had, I, I, I felt I had to tell folks the truth about it, so I tried to tell all I could that I had prostate cancer with a trace in my bones. And I said, I go back for a blood test in a month, five weeks to be exact. And I said, pray that my blood test will get better and better and better every time I go back. And you've read the sword, you know what I said. I said, I want you to pray with importunity, which means just keep praying and don't quit asking God. 
This simple little prayer, Lord, let Dr. Hudson's blood test get better and better and better till there's no trace of cancer in his body. Going back for that blood test is like going down to face the jury to see whether or not you're going to be hung or go to the electric chair or die with lethal injection or something. You're nervous about it. He pulled my blood. And then he said to me, well, it'll be a few days now. You've got to go to the lab and I'll call you. I'm on the road traveling. So he calls my house and I keep calling. Jerry's the doctor called you. No, he hadn't called. Jerry's the doctor called. No, he hadn't called. So finally I called. Jerry's the doctor called. Yeah, he called. And let me say, she said, I wrote it down, so I want to get it just right. I never get anything right. She said, I don't want to get it right. Bless her heart. She said, he said that your blood count, your PSA count, had dropped from 270 to 1.3. I said, Jerry, you get everything mixed up. It couldn't have dropped that much. It had to be from 270 to 130. So he said, let me look at it again. She said, no, it's 1.3. I said, Jerry... It couldn't have been 270 and dropped to 1.3 in five weeks. It's impossible. I said, it had to be maybe 13 at least. She said, no, it's 1.3. I said, give me the doctor's number. I'll call him myself. So I called the doctor. Well, he said, you get an A-plus on your blood test. said, your PSA count dropped from 270 to 1.3. I said, you're just like my wife. I said, you mean 130? He said, no, 1.3. I said, you mean 13? He said, 1.3. Well within normal, he said. If this single one got a PSA count, his was four, they'd say he didn't have cancer. And if Brother Arnold went and got a PSA count, his was three, they'd say he didn't have cancer. And if this man operating this camera went and got one, and his was a two, they'd say he didn't have cancer. Mine's a 1.3. Do I have cancer? I don't know. But I feel fine. And my PSA count doesn't show it right now. And I got, I read everything you can read on the subject. I could write 40 books on it. If you want a health lecture, I'll come back and lecture some six months period for you on health and what to eat and what not to eat and that kind of stuff. But you know something? When I, when I read about a PSA count and what it was, the reason I what it stood for, prostate-specific antigen, the reason I knew it was a red material on it, and it says if it drops and then goes back up, it means a reoccurrence of cancer. So a reoccurrence sounds to me like it occurred. If it comes back, if it reoccurs, it had to come back. Reoccurrence of cancer, it says. So it's low. I go back, though, July the 22nd for another PSA count blood test. I don't know why it'll be. It may be 480. Who knows? But I'll tell you this. I'm not bitter about it. Don't feel bad about it. It shocked me. I just buried my daddy with the same thing, and so it did shock me a little bit. At my age, and I've been sick, 57 years old. I was then, 58 now. But I'm thinking, man, it, this can't be true. It can't be happening to me. But all things work together absolutely for certain, for good, to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And when trouble comes in your life, I hope you'll be like folks used to be when they used to sing this song. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But they don't stop there. They say, glory, hallelujah. And that's what you ought to say too. Because all things work together for good. 
to them that love the Lord, to them that are called according to His purpose. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNBBC.com for Christian music you can trust.